wonder if you have been as fascinated as I have about the growth of the church in Corinth during the time of Paul's ministry. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him trying to influence and lead new Christians at distance by using written letters and word of mouth? It certainly must have been slow, burdensome, and in many ways, risky. It's not hard to imagine how easily it could have been for Paul's letters and ideas to be miscommunicated or misinterpreted. But we also know that the Holy Spirit secures the Lord's message as it moves through his body. We can tell from what we have learned so far that Paul had a passion for the gospel. He wanted people to know the Lord God, Jesus Christ. He wanted people to understand the transformative power of moving from a life of sin and darkness to a life of light, unity, and purpose by participating in the Lord's will, both individually and as a community. In 1 Corinthians chapters 14 and 15, Paul builds on his message from chapters 12 and 13, along with earlier ones. At first glance, the contents of these two chapters may seem confusing or simply not applicable to how we live and communicate in this day and age, but actually there's quite a lot to take away. Let's unpack a little bit more together. But first, let's address a bit more background. A few of the teachers from previous sections of this study have already reminded us that Corinth was a major Mediterranean port city where people from all over the known world were living, interacting, learning, and conducting trade. Similar to any modern metropolis, ethnic and religious communities were bringing together their worldviews along with them, like their gods and their idols and their truths and their theologies, their understanding of who they were in relation to those gods, but also to the cultures around them. Like what's cool, like what's in, what works, what has status and what doesn't. Let's think about this a little bit more for a second. Doesn't it sound familiar? Isn't it something that we all understand, especially in today's society? Given our exposure to things like social media, people just doing and saying things to be heard, testing their own ideas by blurting out, very little is defined, like it doesn't slow down. People get really confused about things. No one knows what the truth is. And honestly, it becomes like really draining and exhausting. It's very noisy. That's how I feel like it is today. And like us, Paul has to figure out how to address this noisy situation. And so we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 14. I think we can make the suggestion that if we read through this chapter quickly, we might have a tendency to assume that Paul is trying to confront the chaos of his day. Imagine, the church in Corinth is growing quickly. New converts are coming together from all walks of life and speaking many languages. And along with that, a whole lot of misconceptions about who God is, mostly because of their previous religious practice and thought. But these same new converts are eager to display their zeal for the Lord. And as is the tendency of many people, they vie for attention within their new group for social status and for importance. This was the chaotic environment that Paul was observing. Some of those with the gifts of tongues or languages, they would come into the group and show off in a way, maybe speaking aloud in different languages to exhibit how the Lord had blessed them. Naturally, they thought that blessing the Lord in many languages was more important than, say, other gifts, and therefore their gifts should be held in higher esteem. As Paul insinuates, there was probably some infighting going on, along with some really confusing worship services. But here's a question. Is Paul's primary concern to insert himself and his own authority to sort out whose spiritual gift was better or to create more orderly worship gatherings? Was he trying to calm the chaos, so to speak? 
Well, the answer might be possibly, but what else is going on here? Do we think that Paul's eyes are on the Lord or on resolving arguments about which spiritual gifts should be emphasized? Paul's eyes are first on the Lord and the gospel. Bringing order to the church gatherings and resolving arguments is simply an extension of that focus. How do we know this? Let's be reminded of some of the passages in chapters 9 and 11. Paul states his focus like this, For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because an obligation is placed on me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 16. For although I am free of all people, I have made myself a slave to all in order to win more people. Chapter 9, verse 19. Now I do all this because of the gospel, that I may become a partner in its benefits. Chapter 9, verse 23. And lastly, for emphasis, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. Chapter 11, verse 1. It's pretty clear that Paul's goal is to bring people to Christ by imitating him and encouraging others to do the same. In order to do this, Paul must know who Jesus Christ is, his image, and what to imitate. We cannot imitate Christ without first understanding his character, his behavior, his image, his word, or his personhood as Messiah, Savior, and Rescuer. In chapter 14, the most basic takeaway is this. Share God's transforming work in your life in a way that is understandable to others and communicates who he is. Why, you ask? Because isn't this what Jesus has done for each of us who believe? Isn't Paul reiterating that we should imitate Christ exactly in this way? Again, in chapter 9, Paul says, To the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may by all means win some. I believe Paul says this because this is what Jesus did, and Paul is simply imitating Christ this way. Where do we see Christ embody this behavior we should emulate? In at least two places, one of which Paul can personally relate to. Firstly, the most powerful example that drives home Paul's message in chapter 14 is Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John 4, verses 1-42. through 42. If we reread that passage, we see Jesus revealing who he is to the woman in a prophetic way. The woman even recognizes Jesus as a prophet. Jesus interacts with her in a way that edifies her and that connects with her. And it's likely he even did so in Aramaic, his second language, the language of the Samaritans. And so we witness Jesus employing both prophecy and tongues. Many Samaritans were saved as a direct result and because of the woman's testimony. Paul drives this home. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. I wish you all spoke in other languages, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesied is greater than the person who speaks in languages unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. Chapter 14, verse 5. Whenever each of you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. 14.26 For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. 14, verse 31. Secondly, we should remember that Paul has also personally interacted with Christ this way. If we reread Paul's conversion story in Acts 8, 1-3 and 9, 1-31, we are reminded that the Lord spoke to Paul and reoriented his entire life. It was done in such a way that Paul had a thorough understanding of who God was in addition to his mission and new identity in Christ. Paul had come to know the Lord through God's use of personalized, prophetic, and powerful language. 1 Corinthians 14 asks us to do the same. And when we do, we imitate Christ in this way. 
It reaches out toward the heart of the unbeliever in an unstoppable fashion. Verse 25 says, The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall on his face in worship, proclaiming, God is really among you. 14 verse 25. In summary, here are the key takeaways from chapter 14. First, as believers, we have our own testimonies. God has written certain truths on our heart to reflect who he is as Lord and Savior and rescuer and as a God of love. As such, we prophesy truths to others when we communicate with them in ways they can personally understand. Second, emphasis should be placed on imitating Christ and making his love and transformative work through spreading the gospel in understandable ways. Thirdly, Christ is knowable and understandable. He is not indecipherable. As we know him more deeply, we will proceed to imitate his character more authentically and in ways more aligned to his will. One way he has made known to us is through our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we move forward into chapter 15, we see Paul focusing in on additional realities that believers experience as they are reborn. As believers transition to their new life in Christ, they begin to conform to the image of Christ, not just through imitating his behavior, but in something far deeper in their spiritual identity. In chapter 15, Paul emphasizes the reality of the resurrected Christ. The appearance of Christ in his resurrected body must have been an extremely powerful confrontation. Verses 4 through 7 detail different groups of people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. We know that several of these people in these groups, they, they doubted everything they had come to know about Jesus until they witnessed his resurrected body. Think about the disciple Thomas, for example. But Christ's resurrected body transformed their concept of who he was. In fact, the reality of Christ's resurrection is so powerful, it can stop the faithless and hateful dead in their tracks. That was Paul's state when the Lord appeared to him, and we all understand the miracle of his redemption story. And so it is with all of us. When we become believers, our participation in Christ's death and resurrection is realized. Verses 20 through 22 say this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We all bear God's image through natural creation, but through Adam we all have put on death. Christ also, although begotten of God, put on death, but he conquered it for us. And so, as believers, we participate in his resurrection and are made new, just as he was. Other New Testament passages confirm this fact. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many believers. Romans 8.29 The point is, if you are a believer, you cannot escape this fact. Like it or not, you are transformed and will continue to be refined toward Christ-likeness. Verses 42 through 45 continue. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 45. As creating beings on this earth, we all intuitively understand what it's like to share in Adam's living being. But let us not forget that once we believe, we are reborn and become a life-giving spirit in Christ's image. Let us not forget that. It's really incredible. Verses 49, 53 through 57 emphasize again, just as we have borne the image of man made of dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. 
For this perishable body, perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where death is your sting? 53-57. If we need a living example of this reality, let's remember the details of Stephen's martyrdom as described in Acts 6-1 through 8-3. Saul, before he was Paul, bore witness to the power of the Spirit in a believer who understood his identity in Christ's resurrection. Stephen spoke truth through the Spirit to his accusers, and they killed him for his belief in Christ. When we look at how everything unfolded, Stephen didn't really experience death's sting. Instead, he only experienced victory through the imitation of Christ. Maybe Paul was reminded of Stephen as he wrote verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's pretty powerful to see how God's image reflected in one person can have such a lasting impact on others and on the whole world, really. To recap, here are key takeaways from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First, Christ's death and resurrection reaches and changes all types of people to include those near to him already, as well as those far away, even to the faithless and the hateful. Second, believers follow Christ into resurrection and become life givers. Third, for the believer, death is no longer of much consequence. God has given us victory over it through Christ.